Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I certainly did not think that podcasting would be something that I would be known for, you know, if I have any kind of a comedic legacy at all, that podcasting would be one of the first things you would mention about me, you know? <laughs> I, I never expected that. When I when I got into show business, I was always like, gonna be, probably not gonna be a movie star, but I'll be a TV star, I'll be a writer, I'll probably win a few awards, you know? And podcasting is gonna be... <laughs> <laughs> the, the the first sentence in my bio. That was Scott Aukerman. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso, and today on the podcast is Scott Aukerman, otherwise known as what else is he known as? Um, Stop Talkerman, Shop Talkerman, Hot Soccerman, Posh Notcherman, Yacht Rockerman, Hot Saucerman, Stop Clockerman. If my parents are listening, they're like, "What the hell has happened to our son?" But uh, for many of you listening, I, I imagine. Uh, this is the first time you've ever heard of Talk Easy. I don't fault you for that. It's an innocent mistake. And um, welcome. We're happy to have you. Uh, many of you listening are probably big fans of the show Comedy Bang Bang. Um, we have been wanting to have Scott on this show really since we started it uh, three years ago uh, back in San Francisco. But uh, as you can probably imagine, you know, Scott is a very busy, important man and we can't just have Scott Ackerman on at any time. However, uh, he was willing to come on the show 
with the release of his directorial debut. It's called Between Two Ferns, the movie. Uh, it is currently available to stream on Netflix. Uh, why don't we take a listen to the trailer of his film right now? Welcome to another edition of Between Two Ferns, and my guest today is Matthew McConaughey. Good to be here, Zach. Of all the things you can win an Oscar for, how surprised are you that you won one for acting? Here we go. I noticed that you're wearing a shirt. Is everything okay? And you have a major leak in here. <sighs> I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Let's see what's going on with these oh, Dude, don't do that. You killed Matthew McConaughey. He's dead? He's brought back to life, but he was momentarily dead. You owe me. Go across the country, get 10 more episodes of Between Two Ferns. 10, your dumb internet talk show, and you give me a network talk show. I'm a white man, and I'm straight, and I deserve it. So, you know, uh, in, in doing research for this podcast, <laughs> I stumbled upon this Reddit thread called, Has Scott Aukerman Done a Podcast Appearance That Has Been at All Revealing? And um, I have to say, in scrolling through the comments and, and seeing all the people doing all the uh, the upvotes, as you can tell, I'm not I'm not an active redditor, but I, I'm trying here. Um, I was really amused by what these people were saying because I, I have to, I have to admit, um, I have been listening to the podcast uh, Comedy Bang Bang and been watching the show uh, on IFC for many years, and I think uh, all that Scott has done with Earwolf and and then uh, Mid Roll has played a huge role in the evolution of podcasting. I think Scott, um, you know, even dating back to his days as a writer on Mr. Show, um, is a really talented, funny, um, clearly resourceful and smart guy. And yet, after all these years of, of being a fan of his work, I really have no idea who the hell this guy is. Maybe we don't ever really know um, the people that we admire from afar, but I think Scott has done an especially good job distancing himself from who he is on mic versus who he is off mic. And uh, I think a lot of this has to do, I'm just theorizing, with the fact that David Letterman um, is one of his idols and one of the key uh, trademarks of Letterman is that he never took anything too seriously. And um, you can see that in all, in all facets of, of Ackerman's output. You know, he is someone who is joke first, everything else a distant second and third. And so what you're about to hear for the next hour um, is my attempt, um, however futile it may have been, to um, really hear and see Scott um, in a light that I had previously not heard. And so without further ado, here is the one and only Scott Ackerman. So you can see I have a lot of notes here. Let's check it out. Yep. Oh, God, I'm really. <laughs> I would, I, if I had to guess, your computer is open right now, and you have just my Wikipedia page. <laughs> you know, this is not Marin's show, but um, yeah, <laughs> he really does do that. You know, I've I've had people, uh, friends of mine, who've gone on the show, and they said he's looking at the Wikipedia page and just taking it one by one, one by one. Well, you know, 
Where else are you supposed to get information? I have no idea. I have yeah. no idea. So you're born July 2nd. <laughs> oh, boy. In Savannah, Georgia. No, can, let, let, let's start uh, as far back um, because you have this film coming out. And, uh, and it is a film. Thank you so much. It's not a movie. No, it's, it's, a, mo- it's a movie. But I was calling it a film to sort of elevate To butter it. me up? Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, I saw it yesterday. I you know what I really hate is, is it's on Netflix, which I believe is short for Internet Flicks. Yeah. And a flick. Ugh, that's so dismissive. Yuck. Disgusting. It's a film. It's a film. You said you saw it yesterday. I did. Um, but, Thank you so much. But the start of the film is really the start of the show. And where the show comes from is uh, you're 16. Your friend Craig invites you on to uh, a show I have written down here as Centurion Highlights. Centurion Highlights, which uh, uh, was a local public access television show in my hometown of Cyprus in Orange County, California. And it was called Centurion Highlights because uh, we were in Cyprus High School and our mascot was the were the Centurions, I yes. guess. But um, he was uh, someone who was doing the show seriously and you had no interest in doing that. I, you know, his, he's a funny guy, so I don't want to say like, he's serious and, and what a s- stick in the mud, what a loser. <laughs> I'm and just I'm quoting funny. your words. I'm not doing anything. Uh-oh. Did I say that? Um, but he he's a really funny guy, but uh, he he also was was really into uh, debate and uh, you know oh that sounds fun and so it was a it was a news program that that just covered the events of the day that were happening to centurions like ourselves yeah uh, sports scores you know who uh, won what where. Uh, what trophies were taken home, stuff like that. So uh, he it was, yeah. a, it was a heavy hitting show, very hard hitting, and so I was asked to do a piece for it. I believe because if I'm doing the math right, I was uh, working on the school newspaper, and so they asked if anyone would want to do a piece for the show, and and they they had an idea, which was they had a uh, an article that was clipped out of the local paper about how the town of Cyprus got its name and the various. Uh, you know, test runs they had for different names. I, I believe it was called Watertown. Mm-hmm. That uh, didn't stick. <laughs> did not stick. And finally, because of how many trees were planted there, uh, the titular Cypress was born. I I read this article and it was, you know, it was lighthearted, the kind of thing that you would see on a local news program of like, oh, Cypress. I was a, kind of a David Letterman devotee. At the time, I would I would watch David Letterman. Um, I would tape it at night because I wasn't awake. Is that how you say that word? Letterman? Yeah. Yeah. So I would tape it at night uh, and watch it when I got home from school the next day at 5.30 or something. Um, so I was, I was very into him. And so I took this article and instead of uh, doing a, a lighthearted take on it, I decided to do it ultra seriously and, mm-hmm. and do it uh, like a uh, very serious, hard-hitting journalist would. Um, <laughs> Very stoic and and upset to camera about what happened. I wrote a lot of jokes in it and and even wrote uh, a part in it where uh, just about local color, like I lived across the street from this diner, which was called Alan Maggie's. And then just one year when I was a sophomore, it suddenly just was Maggie's. And so I wrote a, a, a part in there. It started out about how the town got its name, but then it like delved into an investigative journalism part about like what happened to Al and where did he disappear to. Right. It was pretty funny. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if it would hold up now, but uh, <laughs> they they really liked it. And uh, I started doing the show with Craig and then eventually Craig got too busy. So I started hosting it by myself. Mm. Uh, you know, 
I was wondering, because you, you love Letterman, what about him do you think you as a teenager responded to? I like Letterman because he just, he didn't take anything seriously. And for some reason, for whatever reason, when I, when I was 14 and 15 through now, I guess, um, I was surrounded by a lot of things where everyone took themselves seriously. I, I grew up in church um, where I went three times a week and everyone very serious there. You know, it, it, so so you have David Letterman who is very, very sarcastically <laughs> – excuse me again. Okay. I'm going to take one sip and then okay. get back into this That's answer. Great. I can't tell. This is a bit or this is some – This is the best bit. Okay. So you had David Letterman who was uh, uh, basically saying that all of the conventions of television and of life itself were not to be taken seriously and that you could mock anything and that the people who took themselves seriously were stupid. And that just really appealed to me as uh, a person who just kind of felt like everywhere I went from – you know, the ultra serious drama program I was in to church, everything, it just felt like everyone was taking themselves too seriously. And it was almost like a secret language that you could speak with another person. Um, I remember the first day I went to uh, acting college, uh, I think everyone went around the room introducing themselves and everyone talked about how scared they were it was the first time they'd ever been away from home and, and they were all like so scared and people were crying and they were talking about what art meant to them. And I had a friend, uh, Brian, who we just caught each other's eyes during all of this. this is hours of this going by hours, hours of people crying and, and talking about, you know, the, the frightening, but important journey they were about to go on. <laughs> uh, and I remember going up to him afterwards and just kind of like said, People have a lot of problems, don't they? <laughs> you know, and he and and we knew that that we were both kind of two of a kind of like people who didn't take things seriously. And and I was in a band in those years, and uh, we would we would play at a lot of coffee shops, and we would see other people, other bands at coffee shops. And I don't know if you've ever seen them. You look like a musician, so I would imagine that you've played a few coffee shops in your life. <laughs> Uh, but, but, but zero, I, I, really? Yeah. I don't okay. know if that's a compliment or an insult, but we can go it's on. It's a little bit of both. Yeah. I wish I looked like a musician and could be that cool. And yet. And I wish I looked like you and could be that cool. Okay. All right. Let's switch bodies. What do we have to do? Make a wish? Find some sort of Zoltar machine? Yeah, or? we can make a film first that will make yes. a lot of money. There you go. That's your next one. Um, but I remember, I remember bands playing in these coffee shops and my friend who was in the band with me, we, we would watch these bands and the... The thing we would watch for an hour or whatever their sets were, and at the end of them, we would turn to each other and say, "Well, they were very sincere," and that was the the worst thing that you could say about a band yeah. <laughs> was that they were trying or that they meant what they said or or anytime a band talked about the road, you know, any any band that had a metaphor of I'm traveling down the road. So many so many terrible bands start a song with "We're going down the road." You you would just look at each other and go, this person does not have the wherewithal to realize that everything should be mocked and uh, is not that serious and art is not a journey. And, and all this stuff, honestly, that in my 20s and in my teens, I kind of felt and I've kind of gone the opposite way now where, uh, you know, I'm trying to to imbue what I'm doing with a little more meaning and thematically 
things that are a little more important. Yeah. Well, at the risk of sounding sincere, mm-hmm. uh, you said uh, uh, for your time in high school that I was a kind of nerd and I was bullied a lot. And I found that if I can make the bully laugh, he would not want to beat me up. Being funny was a stalling tactic. That was a good impression. Um, I almost thought it was me. But uh, yeah, there was there was one guy. I, I Who knows why bullies – and by the way, I – I've, I said this to a writer I was working with recently. Every person who's bullied is is bullying someone else. Oh yeah, you know what I mean. You have to like it's this. Uh, there, there's a really interesting part in Welcome to the Dollhouse where she is bullied by everybody, and then she takes it out on her friend. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And that's that's just what the natural progression of bullying is. But who knows why bullies pick who they want to bully other other than they sense weakness. Like, oh, this person is weaker than me. I can alpha them, right? So for whatever reason, I remember there was this like pretty huge dude who I don't think I'd ever met who just got in my face one day and decided that, oh man, here come the waterworks. No, it's still the dressing. Just decided that that he was going to threaten to beat me up for whatever reason. Um, and not because I was being sarcastic or anything, just like because I was a nerd, right? The first time it happened, I was rattled. I was like, why does this guy even – I've never met this guy. Why? Do, who, what does he care? And then the second time I started like putting on a show and I was like getting in his face, acting like uh, you know, a, a character, a caricature of a, of a tough guy. And he started laughing and he's like, ah, oh, all right, man, you're, you're cool. And <laughs> – and then he never bothered me again. I was like, oh, okay, this is interesting. I can use humor to deflect that at least. But also, you know, there's a certain power in not taking things seriously where you just seem cooler <laughs> than the people who do in a way, you know. So so in a way, like my high school years were sort of a mixture of acting above it all while still feeling desperately emotional about – not being well liked and not having dates and you know being in love with the wrong people who don't you know or who are too popular mm-hmm. so it was kind of like a way to mask that would you describe yourself as insecure at that age yeah i mean i think i would describe myself as insecure now I oh mean, really yeah yeah totally i mean there's there's a certain i don't know you get into a certain character i'm certainly in character right now but you get into a certain character when you're on mic uh and where you can mask it, but I think you know. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's the cliche of of comedians being wildly insecure, and and that's why they lash out. And I, I don't necessarily think that's true of the, of the comedy community as much as maybe it's just true for humanity. I I've, I generally find comedians to be some of the the most well adjusted, genuine, loving uh, community of people. Uh, God, you don't who are very enough. supportive. Yeah, I really do. I mean, the, like the people that I work with are all so supportive of each other. Um, and I know that people that I've been doing comedy comedy with for 25 years, I know that I can call up Pat Oswalt and say, hey, man, you know, there's this thing I want to film. Could you come by for a little bit and do it? And I'll have an answer right away of like, yes, if I can fit it in my schedule, definitely. Like there's something about the comedy community where we're there for each other. Um, but I think generally, you know, I think I am, if not everyone, is relatively insecure about uh, their place in the world, no matter where you are, or how mm. successful you are. It's true. I've heard you on many podcasts for many years. Mm. And you have sounded 
uh, well-adjusted, <laughs> confident. Uh, in fact, in preparing for this interview, I asked a couple of people Uh-oh. what to ask you. And multiple people said to veer away from feelings, any conversation of feelings. <clears throat> Why is that? That's for you to answer. I think, well, I think in Comedy Bang Bang, especially, um, we tend to not get too serious because I kind of view my job, I was talking about this the other day with my wife, I, I, I get a lot of great messages from people about how the show is, you know, help them through difficult times. And I kind of feel like my job at this point is is to entertain people. Mm-hmm. I remember there was one dude who who wrote to me really angrily on Twitter. And he said, with the platform that you have, why aren't you talking about the war in Syria? Speaking of serious. Um, Get in there. Uh, but uh, why so serious? But I... <laughs> I was just like, well, I, you know, people who have platforms for, you know, I have almost 300,000 Twitter followers, which is not a lot these days because everyone, you know, buys them and they're all fake bots. Mm. But there is a school of thought that if you have a platform, any kind of platform, if you have a show, you should devote part of it to talking about something important. Uh, it's, It's what we were talking about before of, you know, important themes and stuff. And I do think that if you're doing a narrative show um or movie that you need to imbue it with with you need to be saying something about something and weirdly enough the comedy bang bang tv show you would be surprised at how many times in the writer's room we would be talking about what are what are we trying to say what are we trying to say with this episode you know so i we do do that but i also truly kind of believe that people are not here for that with right. with me they enjoy comedy bang bang because it truly is a way to put aside thinking about things and, yeah, they, and they can just laugh. And and I think that's important uh, and and maybe not as important as, as someone who uses their platform to create social change, but I still think it's important and that's what I'm focusing on. Do you think uh, – this, this is not what I was going to ask you at this point, but, but I'll just go in. Do you think that since so much of your life is on – um, podcasts and running podcasts, and you've developed this personality that it has um, affected the way you are emotionally present in your life. I th- is that a silly question? No, no, not at all. I mean, I think it's. I think you're you're basically, you know, it's the same question as are you different on mic as you are, <laughs> you know, off mic in a way. Uh, I'm not, I, I, I truly don't think that I'm like this off mic. Uh, and I am more of a regular person. It, it, it's sometimes I'll have a friend on the show who's never done the show and I'll start talking and they'll go, wait a minute, is that your radio voice? You know? And it's like, it truly is necessity in order to be understood. I need to over enunciate things sometimes. And so one develops this like cadence and and, yeah, a little bit of a cadence and diction and trying to make sure that everything is heard. And, and if when I'm just talking normally, I'm sort of like more of a laid back kind of guy who's just like, Oh, Hey, how's it going? You know, but that's not good on mic. So, so yeah, I think, I think off mic, you know, I have relationships, I have friends (laughs) and, uh, this is not what I was asking. You know, I'm, Oh, well, 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 no, I assume you have friends and and all that, but, but a period that I I do wonder about, um, because I think a lot of the people who listen to the show and, and especially the people who listen to comedy bang, bang 
are folks who want to get into comedy or love right. comedy but don't know what that path looks like. Yeah. You try stand-up once at 18. I did. Do you remember that? I It was a stand-up competition, which I believe was sponsored, if I'm not mistaken, by Budweiser. Yeah. I was going to say Sennheiser, but yeah. Yeah. King of Beers. And um, it was at Cypress College where I was going to school, and they had a tour of comedians who were traveling cross-country, and in every place college that they played, they would have a competition for uh, people who went to school there to open for the show, whoever won would open for the show and do 10 minutes, right? So I think I was one of the only people in Orange County at the time in 1988 who who knew who Jerry Seinfeld was, who knew like the names of all these obscure comedians who were all on Evening with the Improv and stuff. So I was doing a pretty naked Jimmy uh, Jimmy Seinfeld, is that his name? Jerry Seinfeld impression. Not impression even, but just I, I read a I read a stand-up book that was all about the art of stand-up comedy. And I think I think there was a whole chapter in stand-up comedians are really good at noticing things and then talking about them in a relatable way that makes people say, like, oh, I noticed that too. Oh wow, but you're doing it in a funnier way than mm-hmm. me. So I was doing like observational stuff, not a not an imitation of Jerry where I was like, hey, what's the deal with this? Yeah. But inspired I, by. Yeah, it was inspired where I was like note uh, some things that I had noticed, you know, I, I would talk about. So anyway, I think I won second or third place and I didn't win first. And I remember being everyone in the crowd, by the way, was really upset by it because it was one of those things where I don't know if you've ever been in a competition like this, like in karaoke competitions or whatever, where the person who wins happened to bring all of their friends to applaud, you know, the loudest. So everyone there, even the other stand-up people who tried stand-up were like, you were robbed. Like you were the the best of that. It was just 10 minutes that I wrote just for that thing. Um, Did that make you feel confident about yourself? No, I, I thought I did pretty well. But I, I also didn't think that I was doing good comedy. Mm-hmm. I kind of had a thing like that. It was a recurring theme where I grew up in Orange County, which is 45 minutes outside of L.A., but it just seems like it's so far away. And it seems like there's no way to break into show business. And, and my parents, I remember them saying, like, you have to know someone in L.A. and you don't know anyone, you know? So how are you going to do this? You don't know someone. You'll never know anyone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. How does anyone get to know anyone? Like, I'm a kid. Who do I know? <laughs> but they meant, like, relative or or friend of the family, yeah. which is funny when you – then when you make it in show business, every relative, you know, now suddenly they know someone. So it's like, hey, where's my, you know, entree into show business? So <laughs> uh, when the show Friends came out in 1994 – I believe. Oh, um, a better time. A better time. I remember I wanted to be a writer and I moved I had I I had moved back here um after doing musicals across the country. And I was like, oh man, I'd love to write for a show like Friends. I didn't necessarily like Friends, but it was really popular. I think there had been four episodes at that time and it was an instant sensation. And so I was like, I knew that you could write a spec and that could maybe get you a job, right? That's all that, you know, I think maybe I read an article about that in the LA Times. So I sat down to write a friend spec, right? I looked at it and I said, these aren't good. This is like, this is, this will never be as funny as like a professional comedian could do it. So I just put it aside and never finished it. After I started doing comedy and after I worked on Mr. Show, I found those pages Mm -hmm. and I read them again. And 
they're like filled with really funny jokes that really? I would write now. Yeah. And I was like, where was, I just didn't have the self-confidence because I thought comedy is something professional people do and is not something that I could do. What did your parents think about you leaving musical theater? So you go to college, uh, an acting conservatory. You create something called Ecosphere 90. <laughs> yes. You are probably not serious enough for the program that you are in. Is I got I got there. They they respected me over by time. The, by over time. Yeah. And if I get anything wrong here, you correct me. You well, I just did. Okay, that, that was a mild. That was that didn't even <laughs> the feel mildest like, of corrections. That, that didn't feel like much. Right. What did your parents think about what you wanted to do with your life? They they knew that I wanted to do it. I don't think they had confidence that I could do it. Um, you know, you always feel like. Oh wow, I was the best in that high school production. But what does the best of that actually mean? Like when you're an adult, my parents watching from the outside, I was the most outgoing. I, I certainly wasn't good. You know what I mean? Like um I watch young actors sometimes who are like really, really good in movies, and I go, I don't know how they do that. Like, because when I grew up, being an actor meant like being big and, you know, saying, you know, being bigger and more outgoing than the other person because everyone was so painfully introverted, right? So in any case, I think they saw me doing this kind of stuff and they thought, well, he's not going to make it, right. you know, for real. They they were pretty worried about me. And I, I remember I started doing comedy in 1995 and at my last uh, day job, which was uh, Waiting Tables here in L.A. or in the Valley. And that's um, when you're living in North Hollywood? North Hollywood, yeah. So I I remember my dad coming to visit me, and he said, um, you know what? I used to really worry about you, but now I see that whatever job you end up – he's not giving me that I'm going to make it in acting. He's like, whatever job you happen to wind up in, like people tend to generally like you, and you'll be okay. And I think you're going to be okay. And I was like, okay, that's nice to hear. Um, and he certainly wasn't like, you're really going to make it, son, <laughs> in this show business. He was just more like, I've seen you wait tables and people seem to like you. Maybe you'll be a restaurant manager. <laughs> um, but he felt fine about it at that point. Did that make you feel good? Uh, as as good as it was fleeting. <laughs> that's fair. Mm -hmm. You know, you described yourself um, – on this and also in the interview as, as nerdy and and you'd seemed uh, maybe introverted at the time. I wonder, was performing the, the the most comfortable version of yourself? Yeah, I think it, it was one of those things where even when I was between 18 and 20, suddenly karaoke became really big, right? And I would go to karaoke bars instead of going to like just regular places because anytime I, I had a friend who who knew a bouncer at like this huge dance club in Orange County and anytime we would go there I was like how am I supposed to talk to anyone you know and you'd go up to people and say do you want to dance you know which is so the worst yeah the worst and they would say no and it just you know it never seems to go well yeah it's terrible so I d I never knew how to meet people except if I would go to karaoke bars I could sing a song and that was like yeah, an opening. You know, someone would, then someone would come over and say, "Hey, I really liked your song," and we would talk, or I would go over to them and say, "I liked your song." So, because you were a good singer, yeah. So, um, that to me was what performing was. Was you know, I could have gone through high school 
as just the person who everyone had known since kindergarten who they had decided when I was five that I was a nerd and I was never going to change. And I could have just done high school like that or I instead found a way to sort of stand out and be really good at something. So, you know, if someone were to come to see one of my plays, they would say, oh, you're really good. Or when I would do speech competitions and meet, you know, people from other schools, suddenly I was like a winner. And Mm -hmm. I was like, you know, someone to look up to, you know. And then when I went to the Orange County High School of the Performing Arts when I was a senior, suddenly here's this new group of people who didn't know me from before who suddenly I was popular there. You know, because I was really good and I was the lead in plays and, and they considered me to be cute and and talented. And, you know, it was just like that That to me was a, uh, was kind of a safe space for me. You know, you perform uh, uh, twice in L.A. in 1998, I believe. Twice in L.A. in 1998. Well, on the second show, you have a moment that I would call defining. But again, mm. tell me if I'm wrong. Okay. Where uh, Bob Odenkirk comes up and says, "This is in '95, but yes, this okay. is in '95." Yeah, God, we can edit this out, and I could redo it. Nah, nah we'll keep I, it I want the egg on your face you like to it. be very. I, I was doing such a good job until the '95 slip up. Man, that was really embarrassing for you. It is. Should I just go? Um, he comes up to you after the second show. Yeah, the second time I ever did comedy. Yes. Yeah, which is even uh, crazier, I would say. Right. Did you think? Him coming up to you, did it make any sense? Well, it did in a certain way because, you know, seeing Bob and David do comedy um, earlier that year in 95, they they were doing live shows to get uh, their show, HBO's uh, Mr. Show. Um, so they were refining their the sketches that they were working on and also, you know, showing HBO these shows so that HBO could say, okay, we'll give you the money to make it. Um, that seeing those shows before I started was was very eye opening to me. Of suddenly I was seeing people do comedy the way that I did it around the house. Um, because I, you know I mentioned I did stand up when I was eighteen and I was doing observational comedy, right? And that wasn't really me. I'm not a guy who look if if you ask me to observe things in this room. I mean, I think there's four lamps. Is that atypical for a room? I don't know. I, I, I don't know what to say it, anymore. By the way, can I t- it is atypical. Why do it you is. have four lamps in here? I, well, I you have overhead lights. If I had to lights. guess, the room would be darker without them. I don't know what's going on in here. But So that's not really where I live. But um, I was, you know, pretty funny around the house and, you know, with friends and stuff. And, and I was doing sort of like darker kind of humor not taking things seriously, sort of a, you know, a cross between the sarcasm of Letterman, but also like kind of like darker stuff that I didn't think show business was interested in. You described it as annoying your friends. Yeah. Is that fair? Well, yeah. People people think you're not funny until suddenly you become a professional comedian and then suddenly they go, oh, yeah, you're funny. Um, yeah, but they were very annoyed before I actually like, you know, became someone who did it. But um yeah, I just seeing them unlocked something for me where I suddenly said, "Oh, you can be in show business and do what I I like." I'd never seen it before. So when those guys did it, I I suddenly realized, "Oh, okay. Let me do what they do." And so those early shows were, you know, they were in 
my voice and my partner's voice, but at the same time, we were very heavily influenced by Bob and David. So to have Bob come up and say, hey, I really like the, what you're doing. Um, that was good. Thank you. God damn it. I really like uh, that show, buddy. What's up? Um, to have him say that was, uh, it, it made sense in the way of like, well, yeah, I'm just doing an imitation of you. But um, not him personally, but like what he does. And so, but it was very gratifying. And, and you know, the fact that, that we found common ground with what we found funny was very exciting. Mm. Can we go to 98? Where Let's I, go to 98. Which is where I thought I was sure. before I messed up. You probably mean, was it 98 or 99? It was 98. It's either 98 or 99 that um, Kulop comes to uh, a taping yes. uh, of a show. I think it's 99. You said a word, Kulop, that if the listener doesn't know what you're talking about, it's it's not a normal word. Well, I, I was about to get to it. <laughs> You, you, for for the uninitiated, a woman named Kulop. A woman named Kulop. Yes. Um, who would later become your partner. And then my ex-girlfriend. Yes. I, I, and finally my wife. Yeah, well, you had to make a pivot from... Sure, yeah. Which is a tough pivot. <laughs> it's a tough pivot to do, but girlfriend she understood. Girlfriend fiance, yeah. Yeah. How did she take that when you broke up with her? <laughs> well, it was immediately followed by a proposal, so... Yeah, so you saved yourself. So, yeah. I mean, the, the tears uh, of pain went to tears of joy. Was dating someone... Uh, you were 28 and she was 19. Was that challenging? The, I'm trying to think of any challenge, I guess, you know, getting her into bars? <laughs> no, not really. I mean, you know, when you're when you're in your 20s, it's not, you know, I don't think an age difference our age difference had never really seemed like that weird of a thing. Mm. You know, I think I would say the only challenge would be that she had just moved to LA. Um she had been there a year by the time we started dating, but she she hadn't really found her place yet, and she hadn't really found. She came from the Midwest. She came from Minnesota. Wanted to be an actor her whole life, but instead uh, got accepted into fashion design. All of my friends kind of became her friends, and mm-hmm. she didn't have a lot of friends of her own, you know. And so that was the only challenge is is sort of equalizing that to, to where now she has like way more friends than I do and has a has a you know a two active social life where you know she's having a lot of get-togethers at our house <laughs> to the point where I'm like please can I just go to bed and not have people screaming on a karaoke mic all night um but you love karaoke I I don't need it to meet girls anymore <laughs> I have one <laughs> put it away Mr. Show ends uh December 28th 1999. Damn, son. Uh, when that ends, this is your first like real job. Yeah. That is in the field that you uh, like and want to do. What do you think about where you're headed after that? Because I know there's a period where things are especially hard. At that point, it wasn't it wasn't that bad. Actually, it was it was uh, really easy right then. Okay, it because was later on. yeah, it was a little later on because uh, when we ended Mr. Show, I think our very last week, uh, Bob and David called us all in and said, "Hey, we're ending the show, but we're going to make a movie, and we want you all to write it with us." Um, it was like in my mind, I was like, "Oh yeah, okay, yeah." Well, I go from you know writing this uh, award nominated show uh and then i'm gonna write movies just like the python guys did yeah that'll be great 
So, and then also I'd written a spec um, that was getting a lot of attention and got me a manager and uh, looked like it was about to get made. And then I got the the job to write the Tenacious D movie, which had a lot of heat on it and everything like looked really great. Um, I would say it was more around 2002 or 2001 when things started to get kind of bad. So we shot the Mr. Show movie in 2000, and I was in Atlanta uh, uh, when the 2000 election happened and, like, in a hotel room watching the, you know, electoral college, all that kind of stuff go down. And I was in a hotel room mainly because I'd flown myself out there to shadow the director to learn how to direct movies, and uh, 45 minutes uh, into the first day, he yelled at me and told me to get away from him. (laughs) And uh, so I went back to the hotel room and... uh, Got away from him. Yeah, just watch TV. But in 2001, the 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 Mr. Show movie drama started to happen, um, and we suddenly, or not even suddenly, very slowly, a slow drip of realizing this movie sucks. We're never going to be able to be led into the editing room to at least try to help improve it. Oh, no. So you could tell that it wasn't good. Yes, most definitely. I mean, look, most first cuts of anything are challenging, but that's when you roll your sleeves up and go, oh, okay. I mean, the movie I just did, um, you know, and and every episode of Comedy Bang Bang, you go in there and sometimes you're surprised and like you're like, damn, you guys did this. This is amazing. And right. you guys added stuff and like you elevated it. And that would happen quite often on Comedy Bang Bang. But I will say that the the majority of the time you ever watch anything the first time you're sitting there going like yeah did did we write this shitty or did we like <laughs> was this not directed right or something and then you open it up you figure out what the footage is and you try to communicate your intent to the editors of like oh what i actually meant i mean the opening scene of the between two ferns movie i remember like it was it was edited so wrong mm-hmm. and uh and i had storyboarded it too and uh and I had likened it to a different movie that I told them, hey, it's a lot like this movie. And I think they got confused that it was like a different part of that movie. And oh. they edited it like that part of the movie and not right. the part that I was talking about. So, but the first time you see anything, it's like normally shitty, right? See, Scorsese says if you don't, uh, if you're not crying at the end of the first assembly cut, you probably didn't do it right. Yeah. I don't think any of us cared that the first time we watched it, it was bad. We all just thought that it would be like the the TV show where okay great let's get to work let's let's open up the footage and 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 cut it the way that it should be cut and that because TV that's how it works is is I I Bob and David were so generous that if you wrote a scene you were then in charge of that scene and you were on the set and you gave notes and you you know worked with the directors and we had directors like. Um, Jonathan and Valerie, who did Little Miss Sunshine, and Peyton Reed, who's done the Ant-Man movies, you know, mm-hmm. and and uh, they all really valued our uh, input in in terms of like what we were seeing when we wrote certain jokes or what might make something funny or whatever. But when we did the Mr. Show movie, that's TV. Like editors welcome writers and producers, you know. But for a movie, the director's in charge. And we always just thought, well, this is our buddy who produced the TV show with us. Like, it'll just be like the, mo- the, the TV show. It's the same process. And suddenly, after that first cut, 
there were notes and we got the sense that notes were not welcome, that it's like, no, 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 guys, I put the movie together. I'm the director. This is how the movie is. You have notes for me? What are you talking about? So so we just got a we got a big education. Oh shit. The movie could have been so much better. But at the same time, I, I still think that there were limitations to it. There were there were so many mitigating factors that made that movie bad. Money was moved elsewhere from the budget. Uh I heard that through various <laughs> sources. The budget not being allocated properly. I mean, I think if you're doing a comedy movie, and this is what I tried to do on the Between Two Ferns movie, is you 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 have the most talented comedians in your cast. Give them like a few takes to 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 improv and right. do some really funny stuff. But but the schedule on that was like you can only have two takes for every scene, and you have to do the script exactly because instead we need to film this giant bus crash. Where we have a rotating camera, you know, like all this money spent on stuff that doesn't matter to a comedy movie. So, yeah, I don't know. It, it, that became a real bummer where I suddenly was like, you know, going from what I thought was going to be uh, my calling card into making movies. And suddenly it's not even going to come out. And it ended up coming out on DVD instead of ever coming out in theaters. Add to that. The Tenacious D movie I was fired off of and the script that I thought was going to get made uh, suddenly got a red light after getting a green light. And suddenly I'm in a position where, oh, shit, like I just thought everything. Oh, and I also had a TV show that I was going to star in that that got turned down. So like all this stuff happened in the same year or so. And, and Jeez, in one year. And I went from being like. Oh, the golden boy who's Emmy nominated for, you know, and the youngest guy on Mr. Show who's going to just keep that rolling and just do whatever I want in show business to having no prospects. By 2001, I was broke and my cars, my cars were repossessed and my house, I was just about to lose my house. So, yeah, it got pretty dark in that, uh, you know four-year period or so. Is there a, is there a moment in that four-year period? Do you think like, you know what, it's been a good run, but like, I, I don't want to do this anymore? Um, Because you start the live show in 2002. 2002, Death, right? yeah. No, I weirdly, I always thought like, look, I'm, I'm a man. I'm white. I'm straight. There will be some opportunities and, and, for and me. Look, those are good things to remember. <laughs> um, no, I never, I never really thought, oh, I'm not – I never thought, hey, I'm never going to work again. I thought, oh, shit, I didn't realize that this was harder. And I kept learning lessons along the way where, you know, I assumed Mr. Show, uh, that's all I needed to get in, get my foot in the door, right? And I wrote this really funny Tenacious D script that, like, everyone in town says is one of the funniest scripts they've ever read. That's all I need. But then you find three years later – I'd be on the phone with my agent saying, like, how come you aren't getting me a job? And him going, well, you haven't written anything in three years. I'm like, but everyone loves that Tenacious D script. It's like, write something else. Like, that script's old. You know, you you have to keep proving yourself, unfortunately. So I never thought I was never going to get a job again. I just slowly started to learn a better work process Hmm. where I became more productive. I think most people would hear that year you had, which sounds Mm -hmm. uh, nightmarish. Did you have uh, any kind of wave of depression after that? 
I, you know, I, I do remember around the time when everything was going south. That was pretty rough because it just was like me going to Del Taco for every meal for the 99 cent menu, you know, because I would have $3 on me, mm-hmm. you know, and my and every day calling up the places that owed me money, NBC and other places that I had development deals with and going like, when can I get the check? And them saying, oh, yeah, no, it's it's they're processing it now mm-hmm. and you should have it. Well, what does that mean? Oh, you'll have it in a week, and then it doesn't come in a week. It's like, where is it? Oh, well, they made a mistake in the processing. Basically, like you figure out all these corporations just want to hold on to your money as long as they can so mm-hmm. they can collect the interest on it, and they only pay you when they're forced to, right? It, it got it got pretty bad for those years, and then I got some help financially – not help financially – I, I did get some from my manager who like very nicely believed in me and and lent me I think six thousand dollars to 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 pay the union back WGA so I could get my new script deal that mm-hmm. I was finally gonna like have some money you know and be able to pay the WGA you were and so they're backlogged on dues but I was so backlogged on dues they said we're canceling your deal unless you pay us and which I thought was a weird catch twenty two but uh, he loaned me some money but more than that I just like got help from. A business manager I started working with, you know, trying to figure out my ruined credit. And and then I also, you know, just started to try to figure it out a little bit more of like, hey, maybe the script writing, nothing is ever going to get made. So I better start focusing like my my comedic happiness elsewhere, which turned right. out to be the Embar show, uh, which turned out to be Comedy Death Ray. I was wondering, did did the struggle of, of those few years affect your relationship with Kulop? No, I, I mean, I thought I think we got closer. I mean, there were various things that happened around that time that I think drew us closer. And she, uh, yeah, she was very helpful at that time, and and you know, someone that I could lean on. It, uh, yeah. So I, I, I don't think that it, that our relationship took a hit from it i actually think that it it got deeper from all that yeah it's in that time you make a documentary about your uh, parents yeah it was somewhere in the mid 2000s you know when it was was 2005 the ucb moved here and i taught their first sketch class and i remember showing the first cut of it to paul rust and neil campbell yeah um, who were taking my class. Um, <laughs> They've been married for over 50 years. Yes. They, if I remember right, it's been 52 or so. Was yeah. was the purpose of the documentary to show how a couple can maintain a long... Well, it was it was a gift for their 40th anniversary. We threw them, a, me and my family threw them a big party for their 40th anniversary. Um, I forget why I started to do it other than... I don't know. I just started to realize that I didn't know any of the details of how they got together, you know, because <laughs> here's what happens. Like, you know, when you're a kid, your parents tell you this stuff because I'm sure you ask the questions mm-hmm. like, how did you meet? You know, but they just assume, you know, it after telling you once when you were five, <laughs> you right. know, and it's like, yeah, but I'm, you know, th- in my 30s now and I don't remember those stories that you told me. So I just started to realize, oh, wow, I don't know anything really about how they got together. So I just set out to make a, a documentary about them and and interview them. And and then I also threw in like reenactments of some of their um, their early encounters when they were teenagers. And I cast uh, Paul Rust 
as my dad and uh, Amy Simetz, who's uh, yeah. a really good director and actor. She's she great. was my mom. That is so wonderful. And uh, uh, yeah, so that was that was pretty funny. And uh, my friend Neil Mahoney edited it. Um, and I had never seen a Mac computer. I remember going over to his house, and um, he like was editing on a Mac, and I was like. What is how that? do you? How do you? Well, it wasn't. What is that? I think no, because I had one of the candy IMAX, you know, but I'd never seen. I like you're like. Well, no, no, not your dumb question. Not your dumb question. <laughs> but what? But seriously, what is that? But yeah, yeah. Anyway, so I made this movie for him, and uh, yeah, not a dry eye in the house. I'm sure. Yeah. What did they teach you about uh, being married and a partner to someone? Um, you know, I asked him a lot of questions about that in the documentary, and um. You know what their sort of trick to it is. Um, you know, I think I think for them the option of not being married just was not an option. You know, um, which is not to say that anyone who decides not to be married is doing something wrong, um, because sometimes situations are too untenable. But you know, I I kind of what does that mean for them? It was not an option. Well, they're religious, so uh, getting a divorce just wouldn't even. Yeah. have been something that would have been a fail-safe for them. So mentally, even if they fought, I don't think it ever was like in the back of their their minds like, yeah, but I could get a divorce with this trap door. It just was always like, oh, we'll work it out. Yeah, we're contractually bound. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I think I just, in, in terms of marriage, I just like, I started to learn it kind of on my own too of like, Seeing other people's marriages dissolve, I kind of started to see like, you know, and 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 other things would happen like, uh, like someone at my church, you know, their marriage crumbled because they, you know, he was like a deacon at the church and he was seeing uh, one of the high school girls and stuff, and I and I just you know started thinking about like, God, how horrible for his partner, their whole reputation is wrapped up. You know, it's such like a responsibility when someone says, hey, I choose you to like have not only be married to, but have, you know, have my whole reputation wrapped up in yours. You know, it's just you don't want to let the person down. You know what I mean? You don't, you don't want to be the – a lot of people I think get too selfish in their own you know, desires for like, oh, but I'm attracted to this other person and the heart wants what it wants. And they're not thinking about, they're only thinking about what they want. They're not thinking about like, oh no, this person put like a lot of trust and a lot of faith in you to be cool, <laughs> you know? And uh, so anyway, that's what I try to think about. Mm. You know, you get married in 2008, uh, in 2009. Can you remind me about this every year, by the way, <laughs> please? Because it's coming up. Do you get married? Sure. I, I <laughs> to get married, yes. Yeah, yeah, you can have, Thank you. Look, I'll I'll come to you and do a podcast every year. Thank That's you. what you're That's, asking for. Do it do it a week out from my anniversary no every problem. single year because you just reminded me it's next week. Okay, I look <laughs> I, I got I got your back. Thank you. Uh, May first, two thousand nine, you start um, the podcast. Yes, but, as a newlywed. But on April twenty eighth mm. of two thousand nine, you make a post on a forum called thespecialthing.com. Mm. Do you mind if I read from it? Oh, please. I didn't know all these were still up. That's okay. great. From Scott Ackerman. I'm starting a weekly hour-long comedy show on Indie 103. As you Angelinos know, Indie went internet only back in January. Since then, the programming has only gotten better, in all caps, and they still retained a pretty big audience. They've offered me a month. Untrue, mo- but go on. 
Yeah. The audience part. <laughs> Their programming actually did get better. They've offered me a month-long tryout, which starts this Friday, May 1st, at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. You go on uh, to, to talk about the show and, and Ron, Rob Hubel and um, Tom Lennon, who are coming on. Uh, something about this that I was struck by. Seems fishy, doesn't it? No, it says no, no, no. <laughs> you are so damn earnest in this note. Yeah, I mean, at the time, okay, so this is 2009. I've been doing the comedy death ratio for seven years at this point. Yeah. Like, I've been like posting every single week, several times a week about the show and what I'm doing and all that. Um, quite honestly, I find this with Twitter too. I am jealous of the people like Paul F. Tompkins who can make announcements funny. <laughs> um, I don't know how. Like, I have such a hard time just getting my schedule together that, that, I was doing this this morning of like announcing tour dates and I'm just like, do I spend an extra five minutes trying to come up with jokes for this post or do I just fucking post it? And I so, saw that. You just made them not funny at all. No. So I'm, I'm, I'm normcore now. I'm the opposite way where I do not care about putting jokes into posts. Um, and, and part of being a promoter, uh, which is, you know, essentially what I was for the comedy death ray show for 10 years, you know, is like just trying to get people hyped up about, how awesome this is going to be, you know, and just adding jokes to it is just so much more. I just can't do it. <laughs> Did it feel momentous at the time? Did it feel like a big deal? To no, you? it didn't. You know, I, I, I think it was just like another kind of funny side project I was getting into. Um, I, I certainly did not think that podcasting would be something that I would be known for as, you know, sort of kind of if I have any kind of a comedic legacy at all, um, you know, that podcasting would be one of the first things you would mention about me, you know? <laughs> I, I never expected that. When right. I when I got into show business, I was always like, gonna be probably not gonna be a movie star. Eh, maybe I'll star in a movie or two. Uh, Look, there's still time. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, but I'll be a TV star. I'll be a writer. I'll probably win a few awards, you know. Yeah, but I'll, never I'll, I'll in be my a TV star. I'll win a few awards. Yeah, no but never problem. in my wildest dreams it was like, and podcasting is going to be <laughs> the, the the first sentence in my bio. <laughs> the note also struck me <laughs> as, as someone who really enjoys putting things together. Yes. And and a few people have told me that you are a kind of uh, ringleader of sorts. Yeah, I love that. I, I loved – like things that are ambitious are appealing to me. It's so funny. I was reading uh, – for whatever reason, I was reading a an oral history of uh, the movie Dazed and Confused. And um, – There's no shame in that. No, it was very entertaining. You know, Richard Linklater, I was I was reading about and his his first movie. I, I saw it in the theaters when it, when it came out at my local art house movie Slacker. You know, I'm sure you've seen it where it's like one scene yeah. bleeds into the next a lot like Mr. Show in a way. But um, I hated it the first time. Really? I only saw it the first time and I thought it was pretty good. I was really interested in his work. I've come back on it. I you like, you it. like it? Yeah, I, I, I need to see it again. But um, Dazed and Confused, really good, really funny. I love that movie. But, it's kind of a perfect movie. But what's interesting about it is the original version that he had in his head was, oh, what album is it? He It was going to be two guys in a car, and they were going to put in a tape of a certain album from 1975 or whatever. 
uh, maybe, you know, Aerosmith's Toys in the Attic or something. And the movie was going to last as long as the tape and just going to be two shots, the tape going in and then one continuous conversation soundtracked by every uh, song on this tape. That's excellent. I bring this up just simply because, like, I love things like that. (laughs) You know, I love ambition. Nothing would please me more when I started doing the comedy death ray shows than to do these ambitious shows where – you know, some of the bigger ones are the ones we did, I think, three that were the all-night shows that started at 7 p.m. and then would get out at, you know, 9 in the morning the next day. Or the Halloween shows where I remember going up to Susan Hale, who was in charge of the UCB, and saying, like, hey, would it be cool if I made a Halloween maze that people went through all throughout the theater and backstage everywhere until and it deposited people in their seats at the end and she said oh absolutely not there's no way that you could do that i said "Ah, i'm gonna do it and then like was she against it because you used the word deposited yeah she it was a trigger for her and so so you steamrolled her steamrolled her and then we it was something that was like a beloved thing that we did for you know five or six years there um or you know like gathering up a bunch of the comedians who were regulars on the show and going to Sears and, and taking, you know, family portraits together for Christmas, you know, or the calendars that we put out with Robin Van, Van, uh, Von Swank rather, um, was just a photographer I met on MySpace, And I was like, Hey, make this calendar with us. And, you know, so she suddenly was like photographing these incredibly famous comedians, you know, <laughs> it was like one of her first big assignments, you know, and did an amazing job. And it kind of launched her like, that's where she met all these comedians that she's, she's worked with. Um, where do you think that quality comes from? I don't know. And, and quite honestly, not a lot of people have it. And I see the absence of it in, in certain comedians where I'm just like, this could be so cool. Let's do this thing, you know? And, and I have always wanted to do that kind of stuff. And, and it has bled into, I mean, it certainly bled into the, the comedy bang bang television show, which in my opinion, um, doesn't really get its due for being like one of the most ambitious comedy sketch shows over the past 10 years. I mean, we, we could have just done the show the way the pilot was, you know, I talked to a celebrity, I talked to a character guest, the end, you know, but instead we tried these massive undertakings of the, the show that was done all in one shot or the upside Mm. down episode or the musical episode or, and you don't think it's got it to do? Not really. I mean, it's not, it's certainly not talked about in the, conversation. I mean, who knows if eventually no one really writes these articles anymore, but I I remember always being very proud that, you know, Mr. Show, I think was number one on the Rolling Stone funniest sketch show of all time. I remember Tom Lennon being very, very upset that the state was number two. Um, But no one writes articles about that anymore. So who knows how it would be ranked, but I certainly don't think enough people saw it to really Mm. Um, the AV club was very, very generous in reviewing, um, you know, most of the episodes and being, being big fans, um, and paste, uh, magazine also did articles about it. So I, I, I loved it when journalists, and I would always thank them so much if I ever met them were, were writing about the show because I just don't think enough people watched it. You know, I mean, our numbers were so bad, um, so I would love it if people see it, but I think back to your original point, uh, you know, we, we, every episode was special to us and we really wanted to make them 
the most ambitious that we could. And I love and I love doing that. I love it like having big aspirations and then figuring out what you can do from that. Um, and not everyone has it. And I, I think, you know, not everyone has the organizational mind. They just want to do their thing and they want to, you know, do it really well. And they don't want to have to figure out how to organize something. Right. But, you know, it's the kind of thing that has led me to like starting a podcast company and, and you know, producing television shows and stuff. So it's just something that I've always been drawn to. Well, on on the the, the thing you've created here, we mm-hmm. have to leave. He's gesturing at the walls, everyone. Stitcher. I didn't create buildings. Four lamps. You created four lamps. I was the four lamp guy. Look, look, look. I don't want to take credit for this. This is not revisionist history. But I was a guy who came in here and said, like, three lamps? What about four lamps? Look, and I think that could really be the first line in your Wikipedia. Four, yeah, Scott get rid, get rid of the Ackerman, podcast. a true four lamp guy. Yeah. Also had a podcast. Also had a podcast. Mm-hmm. We have to leave very soon. So I have do. only a couple more things for you. Okay. Uh, you've created this business, this network. and, and That's the word for it, business. Yeah. I was trying to find it. <laughs> Copy is like at a low right now. But <laughs> it's done, uh, I would say, reasonably well, mm-hmm. right? And uh, in large part, it seems that the people who've made it uh, special, you and everyone who created it, but also your friends who've come in who are funny and, and, mm-hmm. are, and are talented people. I have just to have a practical question, which is yep. what is the challenge or what is it like to create a business that is very dependent on uh, having your friends also work for you? Because it's not the same as – it's not the same as – so in 95 you came here mm-hmm. to LA. There wasn't a UCB then. Right. And there wasn't really a space and you had to rent out – uh, a bar if you needed to do a show and you would yeah. pay someone a couple hundred dollars. Yeah, or a theater. I rented yeah. many theaters. So yeah. these things didn't exist and then UCB yeah. happens and these things happen. Well, that 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 was the sort of mo- model for for this place was, oh, wow, the UCB came along and suddenly all these things that I didn't – that I had done up till that point, which is scouting a theater, meeting the owner – Figuring out a rate, writing them a check, right. hiring a lighting guy. Logistics. All the logistics I no longer had to do anymore. All I had to do was show up to the UCB. They had their own ticketing system um, online. All I had to do was go do the show and put it on and have it be great. Mm. And I got so much you know, awareness in town from it and buzz in town from it um, that that was – that that was very inspiring to me of like and 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 everyone who was in UCB in those early years certainly 2005 to 2010 got like huge bumps in the industry and suddenly everyone on the UCB started being cast in every single show and movie so i just was like well when when my partner jeff Ulrich and i started talking about doing a podcast company it was like oh yeah well i mean let's do it like the UCB because most comedians are not the type who want to go buy microphones. Right. <laughs> and like they, they just want to show up to a place. I think musicians are the same way. Yeah. That's why roadies were invented because <laughs> they want to hang out with musicians. And that's always worked so well. <laughs> but that's what that's what Earwolf was, was, hey, we'll buy all the microphones. And I made sure that like the sound was all really good because I was coming from the radio station. I didn't want to take a dip in quality. We'll do it all for you, and all you have to do is show up to a place, be there for an hour, leave, 
and we'll do all the rest for you. And then we'll even sell ads for the show if anyone, you know, no one did care for a long time. But if once people did start to care, we'll sell the ads for you. You just do the show, be brilliant. And that's that's kind of what we started the show as, or, or the network rather, is a place where people could come and do their thing and not have to worry about all that other stuff. Mm. So there's been no, uh, I mean, maybe it's, it's a silly question, the kind of question you asked early mm. on in Comedy Bang Bang, which is how do you balance uh, life and work? I'm not exactly asking you that, uh-huh. but is there any challenge in having friends and work be intertwined? Intersect, yeah, sometimes. I mean, anytime, look, anytime you ever do anything with anyone, I feel like I was thinking about that this morning. It would be so much easier if you just were friends with a person and never had any kind of like working relationship. Like anytime you embark on anything with a person, be it, hey, let's write a script together or let's go on tour together. Hey, let's go to the grocery store together. Yeah, even that. Pain Um, in the ass. You say tomato, but what do I say? I don't even know. Um, The challenge is that someone is going to get hurt feelings about something or or – when I work with someone in my other company, in my production company, you know, of writing a script, it's like someone, you know, art is subjective, you know, a note I give could make someone feel bad, you know, because they go, well, no, this is cool. What I'm doing is cool. And if you don't like it, fuck you, you know, there, anytime you enter into an agreement to work, because this is show business, we're all trying to make stuff. And and I've just have always tried to in this the podcasting company and the the production company that I have like I just try to be like no I just want to make cool stuff you know like I want to ma- I want to help you make cool stuff because that's what why we're all doing it like that's that's why we came here is is like we have the opportunity to make TV and podcasts and movies let's all make some stuff yeah. let, let's do it and let's have fun and let's be cool to each other and let's not like fuck each other over you know it it's like hey we all are artists and and I don't want to be one of those CD production companies that's like, you know, keeping all the money and and you know, hiding money and stuff like that, you know, like some of the ones I've worked with. So that's what we try to do and and hopefully the artists we work with are all having fun while we do it. Right. Uh, on the topic of fun, you have this quote that I like. About fun? Yeah, it's on here. Oh, it's going to okay. be here. But but before that, um one of the more uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't even want to like say this, but it's like I have to. Okay, you got to say it. You're taking a sip of water before you say it. Getting um, your courage up. So there's two things I, I've I've thought about driving here. Hmm. Um, you know, the show has made me laugh a, a whole bunch, but there is a moment um, when when Harris Whittles pass. And you give an introduction that is uh, a tender, um, honest, vulnerable thing. Yeah, I let the mask drop. Yeah. And you have another uh, quote that feels uh, entwined to something that Harris said, which is uh, a lot of comedians have parents who are like, why are you getting into this? Why are you bothering? But I think it's very important. I had a brother who passed away and the day he died, our family was there and very shocked, and didn't really know how to process it. We went back to our house, where we'd all been staying, and there's really not a lot sometimes to do 
when you're trying to process your feelings. And we turned on the TV, and there was an episode of Malcolm in the Middle that I remember my friend Dave Higgins was on, and he was being really funny. And I remember my dad laughing at it. And to me, that is kind of the purpose of art and comedy in a way, to relieve the tension and take your mind off how life is. Do you think uh, you've done that? I hope so. I mean, I, I feel like there, there's been... There's been really people who have been very, very generous with their messages to me uh, about how Comedy Bang Bang, at least the podcast, has has helped them through times, and and that's sort of what I mean when I say like that's kind of where I'm feeling like my only responsibility to society is in a way of like I, in my private life, I I can try to affect change and and you know work with organizations and all that. But publicly, I, I think I, I really, you know, I I feel like the show, even if, even if people are not having horrible times, like some of the people who have written to me, um, where they literally feel like the show has like saved their lives in ways, it, it, it doesn't even have to be that dire. Even if people are like, yeah, I'm fine. I had a good day. And then they listen to the show and they laugh. Like, that's good enough for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah. Yeah, I had a good day at work. Yeah, my boss is cool to me today. Oh, let me put on a podcast. I'm good. I'm good doing that. You know what I mean? It doesn't all have to be, the stakes don't have to be so so majorly high. So I, I do I do feel like just comedy in general is like, until they find something funnier, it's what we have. Right. It's not a bad uh, healing mechanism. In yeah. Some way. You know, you can't just sit around being sad all day. You know, you you have to. People read books. People watch TV. Why do people have big ass TVs? Why have TVs? Here's another point. Why are, t- are TVs getting bigger and they're getting flatter? This is something I noticed. Have you ever noticed how TV you like they were like really big and boxy and deep. And now they're like super flat on the wall. You ever has anyone ever noticed that? And then if you've ever noticed the uh, phones, they they were getting smaller for a while, and now they're getting bigger. Look, people have these phones and they have their TVs, and they keep making uh, new ones because like people like watching them, I guess. So as long as that is the case, uh, I think that doing the show or or making movies or making television shows is you know. My old 20-something self would scoff at it being, quote, important, unquote, but I I think it is. Uh, I like that your response to my question was that kind of TV bit, which which is not a bad bit. It's a pretty good bit. I mean, I'm thinking of expanding it. Yeah. I I, I just said it in the moment, but it sounded pretty good coming out of my mouth. I think workshop it. You know, really, well, I think it's pretty good as it is. Oh, I mean, think, I would, yeah, think I think I mean, don't even well. touch it. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying is, is like if it comes out that good off the cuff, maybe the magic is there yeah. already. Yeah, I oh, don't okay. know that it needs to be workshop. Well, I think that really those two responses are uh, encapsulate our dynamic perfectly. Great, Scott Ackerman, it has been uh, an absolute honor to have you. Thank you very much for having me on. Um, I appreciate anyone who who has ever listened or will ever listen. I appreciate babies who don't even know what a podcast is yet, who have never heard of this medium that Conan O'Brien invented, who <laughs> who will suddenly listen to one down the line and say, hey, you know what? Huh, that was funny. 
Thank you, babies. Well, let's hope it's this podcast. Thank you. You're welcome. show special thanks this week to elise mesa i'd also like to shout out Devin bryant for engineering today's podcast if you'd like to watch scott's directorial debut it's called between two ferns the movie and it's currently available to stream on netflix you can hear scott every week on comedy bang bang the podcast you can also learn more about scott on our show notes at talkeasypod.com There on the site, you'll find a back catalog of episodes with folks that I think you may like, including Paul F. Tompkins, Mary Holland, Ben Schwartz, Kate McCucci, Alan Arkin, Raphael Bob Waxberg, Reggie Watts, Jeff Garland, and many, many more. Since we are an independently operated podcast, the most helpful thing you could do for us is to share the show on social media. It's the best way for new listeners to find this podcast. You can also give us a review on iTunes and subscribe to the show on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. As always, Talk Easy is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, design by Ian Chang, social media by Ghani Zur, our music is by Dylan Peck and Jin Zhang, Our associate producer is Caroline Reebok, and the show is produced by Neil Innes. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We will be back next Sunday morning with episode 150. Uh, The guest is an interesting one. Or, well, I hope he's interesting. Until then, have a good week, everyone. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. 
Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today.